Gower. Hello, and welcome to today's Hip Historian event. I am Brenda Holt with the Arizona State Office of AARP. We are the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live. In the month of February, we will focus on Black History Month. When you are a part of a community, it's inspiring to see those who go above and beyond, not only to make it feel like home, but make it thrive. ARP believes the efforts of one person or one community can truly make an impact, but we combine our efforts for the greater good, we thrive together. We honor community leaders dedicated to coming together to transform, uplift, and educate communities. Visit us at aarp.org backslash black community to learn more. Thank you again. And with that, I'll turn it over to Marshall. Well, hello, and I want to welcome you all to Arizona History Happy Hour. So happy that you can join us this evening. Ah, oh, you know, have we got such an amazing show for you this evening. So I just want you to sit back. You know, we're going to talk about all kinds of Arizona history. Um, you know, it was funny going through some of the stuff for tonight. It was like some of the things I thought I knew, I did not know. So it's going to be quite an interesting evening. So let's get ahead and let's start this show. So hello and hello and welcome to Arizona History Happy Hour. So happy you can all be here on umpteen different social media things, um, as well as Spotify. And I think it may be going to iTunes soon as well. So lots of good stuff coming up. So today is February 2nd of 2023. And so on this date, back in 1899, Henry Fontaine Ashworth, the youngest member of the Arizona Territorial Legislature and the Speaker of the House, introduced a bill to create a Northern Arizona Normal School, which we now know as NAU Up in Flagstaff. It is also National Tater Tot Day, discovered, well, actually created back in 1953 by a company called Oregon, Oida, or Oregon, Idaho, shortened to Oida, created that food that has become synonymous with not just school lunches, but also lots of bar food covered with all kinds of things. So 1953, updated to a modern cuisine. It is also National California Kiwi Day. Now, the kiwi originated back in China. We called it um, a Chinese gooseberry. It was then brought to New Zealand back in the early 1900s. And in 1960, it was introduced to California, where it quickly became a really popular crop and is now an important part of the state's economy and provides many jobs for other Californians. And so today is a day we can celebrate the kiwi, the fruit, not the bird. Now it is also National Ukulele Day, a four string instrument that originated in Portugal that was then adopted by Hawaiians in the 19th century. And you can still find it today being played by in a variety of bars, um, events. Um, I know I just saw something about 
the Aloha Festival coming up in March. So I'm sure there'll be lots of ukulele playing going on there as well. It is also National Crepe Day. Now, what I thought was interesting was uh, Crepe Day originated in France. Not shocked by that at all. It is also exactly 40 days after the celebration of Christmas. Who knew that was only 40 days ago? And so it falls midway, right in the middle of winter. And so it can be celebrated kind of a combination of winter and a post-holiday celebration. As well as if you've been watching any social media, you know it is Groundhog Day. Um, originally, um, you know, Poxitani Phil, um, Poxitani, Pennsylvania, was the groundhog pokes his head up out of the ground. If he sees his shadow due to clear weather, that means winter will move on quicker. If he doesn't see his shadow, spring will come early. Now, what I thought was interesting, I also didn't realize there was a hedgehog day. So Hedgehog Day it actually dates back to a Roman tradition when they would use a variety of animals, such as a hedgehog, to do the exact same thing. So I didn't realize we had just copied Groundhog Day. So there you go, February 2nd. So what can you expect tonight? Well, you know, we've got a little bit of trivia coming up. We have from the vault, we, which is something you might not even know is there. Um, we do a little bit of Arizona music history as well as Little Arizona. And of course, there is a beverage and an amazing guest. And more about that in just a few minutes. So if this is your first time watching, you might be wondering, who is that man and why is he on my screen? Well, my name is Marshall Shore. I've been in Arizona a little over 23 years, started the adventure in Brooklyn, working at a Carnegie building, and decided to trade all that snow and slush for some sunshine. A beautiful library in Central City South, where there was a rich old tradition of the community. And so my first introduction to Arizona was really through stories. And so that's just what I'm doing today. We promptly moved it from New York to Arizona into a beautiful 1956 ranch that is pretty much a time capsule. All that buttercream yellow tile is still in pristine condition. Now, as soon as I got here, all I heard about was how there was no history here. But I quickly found out that was not true because every time I would go somewhere, whether it was on foot, on a bike, in a car, I would come face to face with so many amazing people, places, and stories. So my name is Marshall. I also am known as the hip historian. And oh my gosh, 2023 is bringing so much fun with Arizona history. So, you know, we've got, I've been doing stuff with Local Buzz. We're actually getting ready to do some more stuff coming up this weekend. Just highlight what's going on around town as well as some history. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, be sure and make your way out to Scottsdale Public Library where you can see a exhibit that was co-curated by Rip Wood's daughter, as well as some of Rip Wood, who was a 
graduate of Carver, went on to study at ASU, taught at various high schools, and worked and influenced many artists still producing work today. We're also going to be doing with Willow a private home tour that gives you a little bit more information than what you'll get on the Sunday just walking around. So um, check out their website for more information about that. And we've also been doing our LGBTQ story time, community history. And so getting ready for another installment of that. So take a look out for that. And then, oh my gosh, we have coming up very soon, Hats and High Tea, a fundraiser in the historic Pioneer Cemetery to help raise funds for preservation and preserving those headstones. So that's going to be quite an event. And then the next month is Arizona Unzipped, where it is going to be an educational burlesque show at the iconic Orpheum. And then I just got noticed today that we indeed are doing a presentation for the Arizona History Convention called Desert Visionaries. What does the public want from historians? So that will be a virtual program. And I'm sure there'll be information about how, if anyone wants to, they can attend that as well. And then, oh my gosh, March 4th is the Melrose Street Fair. And this one is going to be so amazing because, you know, they haven't done it for a while and it's going to be really a lot of fun. Um, I know I've got a booth there. I've been doing some other stuff with them. So it's going to be a, such a fun event. Um, and I see a lot of you have found the chat session. Now you can also reach out to me through various Facebook, Instagram, email, website. I love to hear from you all. Because, you know, that's a lot of times where I get my best stuff is just from you saying, hey, you know, what about this? Um, it's going to be, vert so the History Commission is going to be virtual. Or at least I know my pieces. I don't know where the actual conference is taking place. So I think because one of the presenters is not available or not in town, that's what we're going to do. So, of course, it would not be happy hour without a beverage. And so, you know, PJ always helps educate me on kind of what's going on behind the bar or, in other words, just keeps me up to date. And so tonight we are drinking a small batch rye whistle pig because whistle pig, who knew, is another name for groundhog. Didn't know that, but there you go. So a little bit of whistle pig on the rocks. And that is a mighty good cocktail. All right. So now we are here for Little Arizona, where we talk about a small town. And so today we're going to talk about Mobile, Arizona, which is in Maricopa County. It's population about 100 people, and it was founded 1925. And as you can see, it's not far from, it's about, I would say like, I think 15 miles kind of west of Maricopa, which, you know, is known for the train. And that's kind of this town. Initially, there was thought that it was because a lot of residents actually had lived in Mobile, Alabama, but that was found to not be true but it was a place for 
the trains. And so initially it was a town where, no, my light just dimmed. I'm like, I don't know why. And so that town, basically you have the train came through there. Now, at one point it had two schoolhouses that were in train cars, but because of segregation, they actually were in, one was a white school, one was a black school. But then you can also go to Casa Grande, the history museum there, and Rebecca Dallas was in Mobile. She was a teacher, and so they have the Rebecca, Rebecca Dallas School named after her there. So you can go check that out and learn some history. Now, it's interesting because Lufthansa actually runs a private airfield out in that area, and it's really for training of pilots and just making sure that all their pilots and staff are trained properly. Um, the area was annexed in the mid-2000s by the city of Goodyear and is now called more Sonoran Valley. All right, so now we have a special guest. I am so happy to bring on my friend Cloti. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, I am so, you know, it's like since you were on a while ago, we keep talking, <laughs> talking, we keep talking, but we were both so busy that I'm so glad we were able to make this happen because, oh my gosh, I mean, you've been so busy doing all kinds of amazing things. <laughs> and you have too. So, and we'll talk about some of the stuff you have coming up later on. Okay. But, so for folks who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is pronounced Cloty. And I'm a second generation Arizonan. Um, my granddad came here in 1917 and was a ninth cavalry Buffalo soldier. So I grew up in Phoenix in the downtown area. And I'm an artist and a curator and a historian, although I'm not that hip. <laughs> no, but you also do a lot, a lot with music as well. And well, so, and I, I know we'll talk about that in just a little bit once we kind of get through all the other stuff. Okay. Because, so, and get a chance to talk about Big Pete Pearson a little bit, but we won't do that quite yet. Okay. But we will all talk right. about Pete. Indeed. All right. So to kind of start things off, um, so the 15th Amendment in 1870 said the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Also then the, vote, the 1965 Voting Rights Act prohibited the states from using literacy tests and other methods of excluding African-Americans from voting. Prior to this, only an estimated 23% of voting age blacks were registered nationally. But by 1969, that number had jumped to 62%. 
And so, and I think that just kind of sets the stage for where we're going with our trivia, which is going to be a little different than some nights, but you know, that's the fun of always keeping it fresh and keeping it. So we, we have a few trivia questions and then instead of, um, then we are going to go through those, talk about the answers, but then, you know, this is where it was like, there were stories I thought I knew. I knew one side of the story. I didn't know the full story. So I'm sure you all are going to be kind of excited to see and hear just kind of how history is always evolving. And that's never a bad thing as we just learn more of the story. And so with our trivia, now what we do is unlike bar trivia, where it is not just the answer is A, and then we go on and never come back. We're going to go through the questions take a little quick Arizona music break, and then we will come back, talk about those answers and the stories behind them and even more amazing things. All right. So our first question. In 1950, the first African-American politicians were elected to the Arizona House of Representatives. Their names are, so was it A, Lincoln Ragsdale, B. Carl Sims, C. Calvin Good, D. Hazel B. Daniels, or E. None of the above. So, which do you think of those gentlemen were the first African American politicians elected to the House of Representatives right here in Arizona? All right. So, Elisha Leon Thompson, Sr. Most people just call him Leon Thompson, was elected to the Arizona House of Representatives in November of 62. In a general election prior to this election, he was employed by what department? Was it A, the City of Phoenix Fire Department, B, City of Phoenix Sanitation Department, C, the City of Phoenix Police Department, or D, Maricopa County Hospital, or E, None of the above. So where do you think Leon Thompson was employed before he came to the House of Representatives? All right. Question three. 1966, the first black woman elected to the Arizona House of Representatives. She served until she was defeated in 1972 elections. And her name was... A, uh, ver now help me with this, Claudia. I know we had this talk. Viora. Viora Johnson. Helen K. Mason. C, Lee Ladrum Taylor. D, Ethel Maynard. Or E, Velma Belfield. So which of those women do you think was first elected to the House of Representatives back in 1966? All right. How many African-Americans are currently serving in local government? Is it A, 10, B, 5, C, 2, or D, 0? 
Now, this is where we actually end, but oh, there is so much more. So just hang on. We are going to take a quick Arizona music break as we're going to get a chance to talk about Dyke and the Blazers. And so they were originally from the East Coast and came here to be backup singers. And when they got here, well, actually, well, actually, some of the members that became Dyke and the Blazers. So you had folks moving from the East Coast here to be musicians. By the time they got ready, that group had moved on. And so they then formed Dyke and the Blazers. And so one of the things I love about this is so that Wilson Pickett hit, Funky Broadway, that was written by Dyke and the Blazers. And one of the things I think is really cool is most people, when they hear it, think that it's written about New York City's Broadway. Well, you know, there's also a Broadway in South Phoenix. And so that's the Broadway they're talking about. So if you want to go check on YouTube, Dyke and the Blazers, and you can hear their original version of Funky Broadway before Wilson Pickett made a huge hit out of it and covered by other bands as well. All right. So who is ready for some answers? I know Darina is. So, all right. So our first question. So in 1950, the first African-American politicians were elected to the Arizona House of Representatives and their names are B. Carl Sims and D. Hazel Daniels. And I just want to jump in here. What might Hazel B. Daniels have done that affected the nation, not just Arizona? Well, and you know, if people go visit the um, Justice Museum at the top of the old city courthouse, he actually gets a mention. Well, he deserves more than a mention because he was behind the legislation that resulted in Brown v. Board of Education and desegregated public schools nationwide. Mm -hmm. All right, and question two, Elisha Leon Thompson, senior, was elected to the Arizona House of Representatives back in 62. And he was employed where before that? City of Phoenix Police Department. So he was one of the very few black policemen. And there is a story about how he was um, involved in breaking up a fight and was stabbed six times and apparently his co-workers failed to back him up. Wow. So I guess, you know, when, when being a cop gets too rough, I'm going to be a lawmaker. Indeed. All right. Back in 1966, the first black woman elected to the House of Representatives, she served until she was defeated in 72. And that was Ethel Maynard. So what do we know about Ethel? 
Well, we know that uh, Ethel came from a uh, service background within her family. She was a nurse and, and just like Hazel B. Daniels, she was from Tucson and, um, you know, quite a large uh, black population in those days was in some sort of service. And so, um, you know, the, the, now I don't know where in those days she got the nerve to run for any kind of office or how she even got elected, but uh, she is certainly a woman to be admired. Indeed. And then a little bit of modern trivia. How many African-Americans currently serve in local government? If anybody can find that answer anywhere, I would love to know. We truly have no representation. And so now we're going to go on and... You know, some of this could have been done in trivia, but I did want to take away the impact of it. So, Clody, I will give you the floor and. Well, thank you. A lot of people do not think of slavery in Arizona. And, uh, of course, there was. And so we're going to look at some of the instances where uh, blacks were enslaved in Arizona. Okay, so, and if I can start out by saying that the Asiento de Negro was the, um, the pact that Portugal made with other countries during the triangle trade, the largest uh, slave port in the Western hemisphere was Veracruz, Mexico. And many enslaved people in the South, rather than going North, they traveled South. And so, of course, many of them wound up in Arizona. And of course, we also know that um, the Mormons traveled West and made settlements, for lack of a better word, and one of those Mormons was James Madison Flake, the great, 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 great granddaddy of who? Jeff Flake. There you go. And he brought with him three slaves, Green, Liz, and Eddie. Oops. And, and Green Flake was extremely, extremely important in bringing James Smith West as well, the founder of the Latter-day Saints. So they first came to the Arizona Territory in 1846. And of course, we know that parts of Arizona were Confederate territory. Um, and the Mormon settlers had been um, trying to get politicians in Washington to, um, you know, bring troops out and declare it a territory and so forth, and they wouldn't do it. And so Jefferson Davis seized on the political opportunity 
and signed a proclamation in 1862, creating the Confederate territory of Arizona. Which coincidentally coincides with the anniversary of statehood. And the Arizona Organic Act, it provided for the creation of the Arizona Territory by dividing New Mexico Territory, which was a slaveholding territory, into uh, along what we know as the current boundary between New Mexico and Arizona. And as I said previously, um, a lot of the bill was um, because white settlers had been petitioning Washington for a separate Arizona territory as a means of protection from Mexicans and Apaches. And uh, the bill also supposedly was going to ensure that Arizona would not be a pro-slavery territory, not necessarily because uh, Washington was so opposed to, to slavery, but politics. And uh, historian Donald Frazier thinks that there were as many as 50 black slaves brought by Confederate officials and troops, but just like almost any other count, um, it, it's very likely that that was an undercount. And so um, we do know Confederate troops uh, conscripted black slaves to come to Arizona. And you can find that in, in the book, Confederate Empire, Blood and Treasure, Confederate Empire in the Southwest. Now, here we come to Jack Swilling, and he's credited as the founder of Phoenix. And he enlisted in the Civil War in Pino Alto, Arizona in 1861. And of course, he fought on the side of the Confederacy. He was born in the South. And um, he earned the rank of lieutenant. Now, Swilling was known for a number of, of ways, such as um, he, had, he had been injured and he had an addiction to laudanum and he was known as being an alcoholic and he was pretty, um, pretty easily aggravated and would draw his gun frequently. And so... Uh, and that is who the founder of, of Phoenix is credited as being. Herbert Guidry was from Terrebonne County, Louisiana. And he believed that the Union uh, was encroaching on their rights. And so he gathered up his slaves and uh, the strongest ones, if, if they could not make the journey, then uh, they, they didn't go with him. But he gathered up the strongest slaves he could and he moved westward as, as a means of escaping. And that was in 1862. But what Guidry didn't do is take a current map. He had an outdated map. And so uh, he, he thought he was in Mexico when he was actually at the Shirakawa Peak 
And the slaves didn't have any way of knowing exactly where they were. They thought they were in Mexico. They were in, um, you know, a, a land that was like nothing they had ever seen before. And certainly um, a lot of fear. And um, so essentially they were even more trapped than when they had been in uh, New Orleans or in Louisiana rather. So after they made that journey and they found themselves in the desert, um, and of course they believed that they were in Mexico, um, the slaves had, uh, particularly the male slaves were uh, under a lot of physical duress and they were forced to build the Chiricahua Peak Plantation. And <clears throat> a lot of people don't acknowledge that there was chattel slavery in Arizona. So Guidry is known for his brutality. So he forced these slaves to build this plant plantation style home. And he forced basically what they considered and I don't know what they mean by the strongest females, but he forced these women to be his wives as they like to call them. Um, I think of it in other terms. And so, um, you know, most of the men died in various ways, a lot of them as a result of punishments. And some of the, uh, what are referred to as grotesque new uses for the enslaved um, were actually some of their skin was used as leather for writing. And so some of Guidry's letters that are in the ASU archives are um, believed to be on the enslaved people's skin. So by the turn of the century, of course, Cochise was becoming crowded and Chiricahua Peak was supposed to hold a vein of gold and you know what craziness that brought about. And so the Southern Pacific Railroad and the survey crew uh, went out to make it easier for people to get to the riches, but somehow they went missing. And it, it was very interesting how that happened. And so the local sheriff, H.P. Betting of Bisbee, uh, had orders to locate the, the railroad crew. And in 1903, he and his men found the Guidry Plantation. And not only did they find the plantation, they found the survey crew impaled on high stakes. And of course, the women that had been left there they, they said they were half crazed. I, I think it's enough to make anyone completely crazy. Uh -huh. Now we often hear about Mary Green and she is considered to be the first black woman in Phoenix. And I'm gonna amend that. She was the first black woman acknowledged by white people, okay? And she came here with Columbus Gray, Columbus and his wife, Adeline Gray. And Columbus was uh, a former Confederate officer as well. And they came here from Arkansas and they built a, uh, a home in what's downtown 7th Street in Mojave. 
And they brought what they called their domestic worker, Mary Green, and her two children. And of course, what we know about slavery, first of all, if she was merely a domestic worker, why would she come to an unknown place like Arizona? And um, also, were her children his children as well? So even when she came to Arizona, she was still a slave. And, and she, she had numerous offspring. Right. And, the, and it's like, I know that famous photo of the house, um, one of her sons and Adeline and Lum will be making the rounds, especially in February because of Mary Green, even though she's not in the photo. Exactly. But, but yeah, I mean, I just, you know, that's one of those things that I think it's like keeps being told and told. And it's like, and thank you for telling more of the story behind that, which is important to know. Well, it, it, we know that there is never just one. And, and once again, with all of the migration from Latin America and fugitives from the South, we know there was never just one. Right. And of course, you know, following the Civil War, more and more slaves were looking for work on ranches because they had experience in agriculture and cattle and, and so forth. And so that was one of the few paying jobs that was really available. And um, uh, we, we all know, well, maybe we don't, but a lot of people know about Nate Love. His name looks like Nat, but it was pronounced Nate. And he, his, um, he had previously been enslaved and um, he made it out West and he had many, many skills in addition to cattle wrangling and horse riding and trick riding and roping and singing. He was a pretty good shot. Wow. And but he must they, have been heck of brave because I can't imagine. Well, and I mean, and as you were, as we were talking earlier, it was kind of like, I mean, you know, it's like there were a lot of black cowboys. Oh, precisely. That it's estimated at, that, that out of every 10 cowboys, four of them were black. Which never gets portrayed in all those Hollywood Westerns. <laughs> Which is probably why my father wouldn't let me watch John Wayne growing up. Oh, that, yeah. So Love began working uh, at the Gallinger Ranch on Arizona's Gila River. And he was a cattle driver. Now, what, what exactly does that mean, a cattle driver? If you stop and think, you're sitting on a horse, and I mean, the word smelly comes to mind, but also, also um, you know, cattle are big and terrain is, is uneven, and, you know, it, it just seems like a very intense thing to have to do. And, of course, there were many surprises in the wilderness, not just animals, but people. Arizona was known for outlaws um, hiding all over the place. And many people like to make it sound like uh, Nate Love had this um, 
really amicable relationship with indigenous people, but he chronicled in his book that he had lots of shootouts with them as well. So, okay, so what, when you say he chronicled that in his book, what do you mean he chronicled that in his book? He was one of the few former slaves and black cowboys to write an autobiography. Wow. That's something I definitely want to check out and find a copy. And I'm assuming ASU has a copy. Um, actually, Amazon might have a copy. Oh, too. but okay. like you and I have talked about previously, you know, modern editing can be right. Yeah, pretty spurious. And there he is. There he is. Um, and, and so many things changed the uh, character of the West so that employment for cowboys became sketchy. And so later on, he became a porter, on the, a Pullman porter on the trains. And the Pullman porters were sort of like the uh, explorers for Black communities because they had the ability to travel and report back what it was like. And, you know, we, we know, um, even though it's not widely discussed, we know that uh, terrorism was prolific by whites, um, as, as in Oregon, as in, you know, Arkansas, certainly in Tulsa. And so they had the ability to tell you before the Green Book came out where you might be more safe. Oh, so they were really kind of the, I didn't realize that, that the porters were definitely kind of just for the community. It's kind of like, where, where are the safe places to go? Where can exactly. you? Wow. Exactly. Now, um, Thomasina Grigsby, the wife of, of Dr. J. Eugene Grigsby, she was a teacher, a biology teacher, one of the very first black local biology teachers, women, um, and she was an activist. And there was a young man that um, would, um, Greenwood Memorial cemetery would not bury him. He was 19 years old and they would not bury him. He was killed in the Korean war. And so, um, uh, Mrs. Grigsby wrote a letter and it was published. I, I can't remember exactly the paper. It was, I want to say the Chicago Tribune, but I'm not sure. Anyway, she wrote this letter and it caught the eye of Eleanor Roosevelt. And if you would just read it. Yeah. All right. So this is a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt back in 1952. I cannot overlook one piece of news which has been in our U.S. papers of late, namely the story of the long wrangled as to whether a Negro veteran, Thomas Reed, can be buried in a certain cemetery in Phoenix, Arizona. It is understood that his father was willing that the effort should be made to gain for him the right of burial without being in a segregated plot. And we can well understand why his father would be willing to make this effort. Reed fought in Korea for all of the free world. 
for its freedoms and protection from aggression. The bullet that killed him might just have well killed a white boy and neither the colored nor the white boy would have had died only for his own race. Somehow it saddens one greatly as one works for freedom and human rights throughout the world to have these rights flouted in our own United States. After Mrs. Roosevelt uh, sent that letter out to the world, Greenwood buried Private First Class Reed. And that is his grave. Right, and that sits out at Greenwood Cemetery. Yes, yes. And so, I mean, and that's, um, I've done a couple tours of Greenwood. And so I always tell his story because I think it's such an important story to tell in terms of kind of just the stories that cemeteries can hold. And, but what I thought was interesting, but as we started talking, it's like, you were like, oh, here's even more to that story. And, and, and he was not buried for three months. He was in the mortuary of Lincoln Ragsdale who is a, a civil rights icon locally. And, and is also at Greenwood Cemetery. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, so I didn't know that other part, but basically he was just in this limbo before he was allowed to be officially buried in that cemetery. And his family, of course, were in that limbo. And I, I don't know necessarily how you would you would reconcile yourself to the fact that someone would not let you bury your child. Indeed. So, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I do want to say thank you, Clotie, for coming on and sharing more of the story. I mean, kind of the especially in February, lots of folks will be talking about Mary Green. And thank you for bringing more of that story to light, as well as this young man, Reed. I mean, what, what a horrible circumstance. Exactly. But, exactly. You know, but people need to know. I mean, people need to know because that's part of our history. And... But I do want to say, it's like, you know, you bring a lot of history to light and you don't just do stories like this, but oh my gosh, coming up, we've got, you've got Soul of the Great Migration. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, I, I started a project and I was able to collaborate with ASU School of Human Evolution and Social Change. Um, on an exhibition about the Great Migration and how Blacks came to Arizona. And it's called The Great Migration Indiscernibles in Arizona. And we are indiscernible because we are never seen as migrants, as freedmen, as refugees. And so uh, very often we are just a footnote or a tangent in the historical narrative. So there are numerous facets to this project, like the traveling exhibition, 
the blues CD, um, Bonafide Blues Review, because I can't tell you how distressing it is to me sometimes when I hear people identify something as the blues and it is not even in the blues neighborhood. Um, and we have an anthology that we've done and uh, various, various uh, community events. So the Soul of the Great Migration is a full day of music that celebrates um, the music that traveled to Arizona with black people. It, we will have gospel, jazz, blues, R&B, reggae, uh, Yoruba drumming, and it celebrates black musicians because this town is just really harsh as far as black musicians. Some of the only places you will ever see them are the church house or the bar. And so the next generation will likely not ever have an opportunity to touch a musical instrument. Yeah, I mean, it's like, and I mean, I remember when you did the Wiscotti and and Pete um, at the listening room for the release of the CD. Mm -hmm. So that was such an amazing concert. And so I'm so glad to see then this coming to fruition of this being yet another piece of that, bringing that music history forward. Well, I'm still knocking on doors and, and a few of them are cracking open. Good. No, you know, I, I, you know, I admire you so much for bringing the history that maybe people may not want to hear, but it's part of that story and may change our perception of what we think we know. I mean, that was like Reed. I mean, here, I thought I knew the story, but found out it went even deeper than that. And even more horrifying for no reason that, I mean, I think that's the shocking thing. And well, so, when you say no reason, racism is the reason. Well, I mean, right. we, we can't we can't look away from it. We cannot look away from it. Right. But identifying that, I mean, it's like in today's society, one would would like to think things like that don't happen. But I know we still have racist acts happening all the time. Exactly. Exactly. So and part of that is also understanding that these are not new things that there has been an ongoing history of things like this. And I have to thank you for actually having a conversation with me about it here, because there are many so-called historians that would not do that. Wow. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. So, so Cloti, thank you so much. Um, I do want to ask everyone how they did on the trivia. I know there weren't many questions, but oh my gosh, you know, I didn't want to water down some of those, some of those connections to our past. And so it's like working with Cloti, it was like, you know, I think this is going to be the best way to actually do this. So again, thank you all so much for watching don't go away because of course we have more coming up uh, i will let cloti go off and have an amazing evening so thank you so much for joining us and sharing part of our history and helping shine the light on part of our history that doesn't get spotlighted very much
Well, thank you. I think I'll go have a Kiwi cocktail. Very good. All right. Thank you <laughs> so right. much. And I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, you know, so, okay. So from the vault, so, you know, it's like the other day I was flipping through a Facebook friends post and came across a town right here in Arizona that has been doing a festival. And so it is Lake Havasu. They just had their 12th annual Havasu Balloon Festival. So this includes 70 hot air balloons. And they actually, the Elvis balloon was brand new for this year. And so they have food, entertainment, carnival rides. It's a four-day festival that brings 25,000 visitors to the area. They do a whole series of lighting the balloons. Um, so it is a fun-packed, I mean, it looks like one of those things, it's definitely going to wind up on the calendar for next year. Um, it really brings the community together. It is done in collaboration with the Lions Club, three different Rotary Clubs, the Kiwanis, and the entire community comes out for this. So what a great way to celebrate. So, so now you'll see why I say, if you're watching on Facebook, you should click on that share button because... We always share not always the easy, easy history, but, you know, it is indeed our history that we just getting to learn more about it. And so that's why I really appreciate Cloty coming on this evening and sharing just that. So coming up next week, um, so it's very close to Super Bowl. So what I'm going to do is we're going to celebrate guests from the past because, you know, I was going back through and I realized, you know, we haven't really done one of these in a while and we have had so many amazing guests on. And so I love getting a chance to just highlight some of the amazing folks we've had on. And so that's what next week is going to be about is kind of taking a look back. Um, so remember, you know, if you have any questions, suggestions, you can throw those out in a variety of ways via email. So, because I love to hear from you all. Um, I do want to give a, a shout out to PJ for keeping me up on kind of some local booze history. And so for tonight, we are going to end on, you know, one of my favorite events which was Mask of the Yellow Moon. Um, and I think it's interesting. I like to refer to Mask of the Yellow Moon kind of post-1949 because at that point, that is when Carver High School was allowed to participate in it. And so I like to think of it being more of a unifying thing as opposed to a segregation thing. And I'm sure that has to do a lot with Hazel and some of his work. So... So we are going to end this evening learning a little bit about Mask of the Yellow Moon. Have a good night, all, and I will see you next week. And speaking of extravaganzas, during most years between 1926 and 55, Phoenix College students joined those of the high schools in the Mask of the Yellow Moon, a music and dance pageant featuring literally a cast of a thousand. 
staged at Montgomery Stadium on the Phoenix Union campus. The production often attracted national attention with themes of Americana and Arizona's history and heritage. A marvel of logistics, timing, and dramatic presentation. <laughs>